This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, February 23rd, 2015. Episode 8, concerning a devil pig, a death prophecy, and St. William's Candles. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and this episode will be continuing with more from the life and miracles of St. William of Norwich by the Norwich monk, Thomas of Monmouth. If you are new to the podcast, I recommend checking out the previous episode, episode 7, and also episode 1, if you're interested in more background on this particular book. Um, And also a quick formatting note uh, to assuage expectations. Uh, This episode's rather front-loaded with commentary, Um, so it's going to take us a little longer than usual to get to the text, uh, but then I'll dismiss class early, so to speak. So last time, our text opened with a paragraph that wasn't about the curing of toothaches, which was the ostensible topic of that episode, uh, but which I promised would become relevant to this episode's text. Uh, I'm not going to reread that whole paragraph right now, but to refresh our memories, the gist was that Thomas, our author, records a scene in which he gets in trouble with the prior of the monastery, a man named Elias. Thomas had decided to set up a somewhat elaborate display around William's sepulcher, laying out a carpet and burning at its head a great wax taper, a curious grandis. When Prior Elias discovers this, he angrily demands that Thomas blow out the candle and put all this stuff away. Thomas plays this episode off diplomatically, or manipulatively, depending on your point of view, claiming that many in the convent were upset with the Prior's command, but that he, Thomas, accepted it as a just reprimand for his presumptuous temerity in making a special outlay without permission. Uh, But at the same time that he says this, he drops a number of none-too-subtle hints that the prior was also dishonoring the saint by issuing this command. Now, we might ask what the big deal is with a bit of ornamentation and a few candles. Uh, There are two answers. One, which we should certainly still be able to relate to, is the basic phenomenon of middle managers asserting their right to be in charge. That is, Even if this were a trifling gesture, the fact that Thomas took it on his own initiative to do it, rather than going through the proper channels, is the kind of affront to the institutional hierarchy that just cannot be ignored. And I suspect that this is probably a large part of what's going on in this particular conflict. However, there's one other answer, uh, which is that candles in this case are not the trivial housewares that we tend to think of them being, but are rather high-status items. Uh, Of course, I say candles today are trivial housewares, but even that's only a half-truth. Candles that you actually burn for light, the kind that you might put into a tornado or earthquake preparedness kit, those are cheap and commonplace housewares, no question. But on the other hand, I never cease to suffer sticker shock when I go out to Bed Bath & Beyond to get a new scented candle to help make my living room smell nice. 25 bucks for some wax in a jar just staggers me. But that said, I've also learned that you pay for what you get, and the bargain bin candles I've tried uh, seem to burn up twice as fast, and they either put out 
no smell or a really cloying artificial jelly bean type smell. So I've come to accept the value proposition of a more expensive, higher quality candle as a reasonable fact of life. Um, but I, I still slightly resent it, even with a 20% off coupon. Anyway, the candles Thomas is talking about are certainly more on the Yankee Candle end of the spectrum than the cheap white votives we might initially think of. For one thing, certain liturgical rules required that only beeswax candles be burned in the church. Uh, that's partly, indeed probably largely, because they burned odorlessly, unlike the alternative, candles made from tallow or rendered animal fat. Tallow candles, especially if the tallow hasn't been very carefully strained and cleaned of impurities, can produce a smell that I've seen described as ranging from burnt barbecue, which doesn't actually sound too bad, uh, to burning garbage, which is not a smell you want wafting around your shrine. The other reason for beeswax relates to a bit of medieval animal lore, which believed that bees die in the act of producing wax, which allegorically links them to Christ's own self-sacrifice. Sarah Blick, a medieval art historian at Kenyon College, has published some recent work on candles and related devotional objects, especially as used by pilgrims at saint shrines, and she provides a number of interesting examples of the extravagance of some of these candle offerings. Um, one custom, which actually uh, made an appearance in episode two of this podcast, is that of measurement, where a sick person uh, would measure the length of an injured limb or even the length of their entire body and have a candle made with a wick of that length. Now, for longer lengths, like the length of your entire body, Rather than making a five-foot-high pillar candle, you would uh, often instead get coiled tapers uh, from which you could cut off usable lengths, um, a bit like cutting wire off of a spool. But measurement also sometimes took the form of making a candle of the same weight as the supplicant, uh, which must have made for some pretty massive candles. The other interesting thing that I was reminded of in reading uh, Blick's articles is that medieval candles are actually a rather difficult thing to study. Archaeologically speaking, we don't exactly have a lot of surviving examples of wax candles from seven or eight centuries ago. Unlike stone foundations or shards of pottery or metal coins, wax candles tend not to last. In fact, it's kind of mind-blowing to learn that we, we even do have a few surviving examples. But for the most part, we instead have to go by descriptions of candles in literature and church records, uh, and these tend not to be particularly vivid. Um, and also, we can go by representations of candles in stained glass windows, in illuminated manuscripts, uh, and in statuary. Anyone who's spent much time with the amazing artwork in manuscripts uh, knows that medieval illustrators had a very fluid conception of scale especially when it came to depicting architecture and background details. So these depictions of candles are a bit tricky, to say the least. For the late medieval period, we have frescoes with more realistic and detail-oriented art styles, but we still have to make a lot of inferences to get even a sketchy picture of this thing that would have been such a commonplace feature of medieval life. But 
so it goes with so many aspects of medieval material culture. But all this is to say that the candles being discussed by Thomas of Monmouth are more like bottles of fine wine that you might give as an anniversary present than they are like two liters of soda that you might bring to a party. Uh, And just for a bit of perspective, the cost today of a three-inch diameter, three-foot-tall Paschal candle for use during Easter is over $200, and that's with modern production methods. So if you adjust that to a medieval economy, you're talking about a major expenditure. So when Thomas decides to light his candle without getting permission, it's a bit like popping open a bottle of Dom Perignon at the office party without checking with the boss first. So that also helps uh, explain Prior Elias's anger. Anyway, let's get on to our text. Uh, There is one final element um, to bear in mind during this reading, uh, and that is that Thomas, our author, has, at the time of these events, taken on uh, the role in the monastery uh, of being the particular sacrist of William's shrine. And William had only died about 30 years before the time that Thomas is writing this legend, and as such, uh, isn't firmly established in his sainthood. So Thomas is deeply and personally invested in promoting William of Norwich, and he wouldn't be too far wrong in believing that his efforts are uh, individually vital for preventing William from slipping into obscurity, as so many local saints had done before. This lends his Vita of the Saint a kind of desperate earnestness and a kind of puppy-dog enthusiasm where you see him trying just a touch too hard to convince you of how great William is and how obvious the manifestations of his sanctity and power are. And I don't think that that's purely modern secular skepticism that makes the text read that way, where we might judge religious zeal more harshly than a medieval audience would. You can see a certain resistance to Thomas's passion, even from his fellow monks at points in the narrative. You can easily picture him as that co-worker who's always grabbing your elbow to harangue you in breathless whispers about the self-help guru who has totally turned their life around or the radical diet that's given them a superhuman immune system or whatever. I think Thomas is actually a pretty fascinating narrator, as I've said before. Um, His prose bristles with vivid little details that are so often lacking in other examples of medieval history writing but he is not someone I would want to have to sit next to on a train. Today's passage picks up right after a short catalog of miracle cures, which included the first two toothache cures from last episode. Um, And so these are what Thomas is referring to right at the start of this passage when he talks about the proofs of St. William's power that fueled his growing cult. Uh, As before, today's reading comes from Jessup and James' 1896 translation. When, by reason of these and other virtues, the blessed martyr began to wax famous, among the many operations of his goodness it came to pass, nevertheless, that he was to some degree provoked and angry with here and there one who was disobedient to him, and, as we conjectured, that was especially the case since he saw that some abused his patience in removing the carpet and the light and not allowing them to be restored, 
in order that hereby he might inspire them with fear and induce them to correct their evil doings. Therefore it pleased him to make known by sure signs that he was displeased thereat, and he took care to send his mandate to the prior Elias through a certain Richard of Lynn, a monk of Norwich. This Richard was in those days seized with a fever, and suffered worse and worse from day to day. Wherefore, moved thereto by my advice and that of many others, he repaired to the oft-mentioned sepulchre of the blessed martyr, and spending the night watching prayers, he begged of him a recovery of his health. And whilst he was lying there with two servants, suddenly a black pig entered the chapter house, or rather, as is believed of some, the devil under the appearance of a pig. The witch entering suddenly and grunting, when the servants started up and, I wot, were much terrified, he made straight for the monk as he lay there, and with a rush he jumped upon him and frightened him dreadfully as he slept. Then straightway the servants, recovering themselves, ran to him and with difficulty turned him out of the chapter house. Then some of the monks came running to drive him out of the cloister, and after much chasing of him on the part of the monks hither and thither, they had hard work to shut him out of the cloister. But as may be conjectured from many circumstances, that old enemy of the human race who always begrudges the saints their triumphs and is ever trying to bruise their heel did peradventure by means of that material pig, a creature surely among the filthiest and akin to himself, wish either to make a mock at the monk or so to frighten him as to hinder him from carrying out his plan of devotion. Meanwhile, the aforesaid sick man was lying by the sepulchre in the chapter house and again was sleeping till the dawn began to break and he saw in a vision St. William standing by him and saying, Why hast thou come here, Richard, and what seekest thou? And he, Because I am sick, Lord, and I desire to be made whole. To whom spake the martyr, Thou hast brought nothing, thou hast offered nothing, brother. But nevertheless, if I cure thee, what reward wilt thou give? The monk answered, What shall I give, I who possess nothing that I could give thee in any way to do thee honor? To this the martyr replied, I was born on the day called Candlemas Day, and candles I love, and therefore, of course, I call on thee for what candles thou hast. And when he declared that he had no candles, he added, Nay, brother, thou not only hast certain candles which thou didst acquire wrongly, but thou hast hidden away some of the largest and the handsomest which thou art keeping in thy private possession. All these I desire to have, and especially the handsomer ones, which thou hast determined shall be given to thy brother's wife. Then said the monk, That can by no means be done, Lord, that I should bestow on thee those candles which I have prepared for her, but for the others, such as they are, vouchsafe to accept them as my free will offering. Then the martyr, provoked to anger, replied, So then thou lovest her more than me. Thou hast made a bad division, brother, in that what thou holdest cheap, that thou hast apportioned to me, and what thou valuest to the woman. Why then comest thou to me, whom thou dost not love in thy heart, as though I would cure thee? Wherefore, know for certain that thy wish shall nowise be granted against my will. I do straightly counsel thee that those candles that I spack of be brought hither in the morning. But if thou refusest, 
Know of a surety that whether thou wilt or not, those candles I will have. If therefore thou wouldst enter into favor with me, bring those candles that I ask for, and hand them over to Dom Thomas, my sacrist, to be kept in his custody. When thou hast so done, tell him that those candles and those five others which he keeps stored up in his cupboard be diligently guarded for my use, for very soon it is certain that my light shall be restored to me which was denied me. And fear not to say to Prior Elias that in good faith I counsel him that with due honor he atone for the wrong done me in the insult offered me, and that he restore the carpet and the lamp that was taken from me. For verily God so wills and bids this to be done. But if he will in no wise acquiesce, and even presumes to make light of my command, and with a proud look to rebel against the divine ordaining, let him hold it for certain that right soon he shall pay a heavy penalty. And as for thee, because thou hast thus refused my petition, I forewarn thee with this denunciation, that thou shalt suffer for thy sin of disobedience, such great agony as thou hast never yet known. But if, even so, after correction, thou dost not satisfy me, be sure that thou shalt suffer much worse things. So now, get thee gone, and if thou be wise, let my words sink deep in thy heart. After this, Richard, awakening and much terrified by so dreadful a vision, rose, now that the daylight was beginning, and went his way to the infirmary. And after the space of an hour, the prior with many of us being summoned, he told all that had been spoken or enjoined upon him. But what had been ordered to be said to the prior, that he took care to tell him alone. At the hearing of which, the prior, somewhat disturbed and alarmed, determined diligently to make a searching examination into the truth, and convening me on the subject of the five candles that had been mentioned, he ordered that they should be produced, if, indeed, it should appear that I had them. Now, I had forgotten three candles, which on Easter day had been brought to the holy martyr's sepulchre, and which, since the light was prohibited, I had tied together and put away, labeled with the martyr's name in the cupboard. And I only remembered the two candles which the lady Muriel de Secchi had offered on the feast of the Holy Trinity, so I said that I had only those two, and ran to fetch them. And when I had opened the cupboard, I found the two candles, which had not yet escaped my memory, and when I found them, I began to search carefully if, perchance, I could find those three also which were said to be in my keeping. And when I had found them, for they were there, I knew them by the forementioned label to be the martyrs. Then I added them to the other two, and with great joy and wonder I brought the full number of five to the prior. At the sight of them the prior, wondering in his mind on the fact that the truth of things secret had been made clear, and also on the threatening sentence concerning things that were to come to pass, did at one moment applaud and smilingly pretend to be glad, and anon, by his pale face, showed that he was afraid. And so, agitated as well by the revelation of hidden things as by the dreadful message, partly softened and partly keeping up his original hardness, he relaxed a little his original sentence with regard to the light, but he would by no means allow the carpet to be replaced. Not long afterwards, when the hour for his ague had returned, of which I made mention before, Richard, attacked by the cold in his limbs, began to be seized with such great pain in all his body as he had never felt before, and knew himself to be suffering according to the words of the blessed martyr. And after being agonized for a long time, they found him lying just as if he were dead. But when holy water had been sprinkled upon him copiously, at last he began to yawn, and after about an hour his eyes opened faintly, and his limbs moved, and he gradually came to himself. Whereupon we, 
perceiving that a part of what had been promised was evidently coming to pass, looked out for the completion of the rest with patient expectation. From that time, by permission of the prior, a light was wont to be kept up every night at the holy martyr's sepulchre, and now and then too by day, although the practice was discouraged. It came to pass that candles and wax tapers were brought by pious worshippers and burnt there. Meanwhile I, Thomas, who was then the blessed martyr's sacrist, perceived that the five candles that I spoke of before were nearly consumed, and I conferred with the forementioned Richard and questioned him about those other candles which he was ordered to hand over to me. And he, I know not whether it was from laziness or that he had now slipped into a disregard of the vision, always deferred giving them up from day to day, nor did he give them to me at all. But it chanced that about that time I and Dom Richard de Ferraris, who afterwards succeeded Prior Elias as Prior, went to Ely on some important business, and having finished what we were engaged upon, we returned on the fifth day to Norwich. In the meantime, while Richard, the sick man, was sleeping in the night, again there appeared to him in a vision the blessed martyr William with an angry look, and said, How is it, brother, that thou hast chosen to act thus? Why hast thou not given the candles as I bade thee to Dom Thomas? I know, yea, I know the perverse stubbornness of thy mind. By no means as thou hast purposed, but very differently shall things come about. For neither shalt thou have the power of handing them over, nor shall thy brother's wife, as thou intendest, be able to receive them from thy hands. For her, she will come to Norwich on thy account, but she will not find thee. Know that my Thomas is now absent, but will return after the third day to receive from another the candles that I have given orders for. Now, therefore, go thy way, and pay thou the due penalty for thy sin of disobedience. With these words he smote him heavily on the forehead with the back of his hand, and caused him severe pain in his forehead, and said, Lo, tomorrow is Saturday, and it is thy last day, the day of thy death. Go, therefore, and make thy confession, and do penance worthy of thy misdeeds, so that, purified by this passing pain, thou mayest be counted worthy to receive pardon and escape the punishment which is eternal. Hereat Richard, smitten with fear, awoke, and felt the pain straightway beginning in his forehead, extending over his head, and afterward traveling from his head downwards through all his limbs. When the monks rose in the morning, he too rose, and supporting his feeble limbs upon a staff, went into the chapel of the infirmary, and when some of them came to visit him, told them with tears what he felt and what he had seen. Then, secretly calling one of the brethren, he, in sorrow of heart, recalled before his mind's eye his past life and according to the advice of the holy martyr, bringing back to his memory his misdoings, made confession and gave proof with abundant tears of the penitence of his humbled heart. And so, by that confession of the mouth and sincere penitence of the heart, we believe that he obtained pardon of the Lord. A little time after, while leaning on his staff, he was making his way through the infirmary, his last hour approached, and his strength leaving him by reason of his pain, he suddenly fell and made it clear by his death-like look that he was near his end. And so the brother died, and as he was dying the others gathered round him, and with all due rites they buried him next day. And then this wonder happened, namely that on that Saturday when the bell was tolling for the dead man, in accordance with the martyr's prophecy, his brother's wife did come to Norwich on his account, but because she did not find him, she went back home again in sorrow, and without any reward for her trouble. But next day, 
When the aforesaid Richard de Ferraris and I returned and had knowledge of what had happened, we were smitten with very great alarm, and on my arrival the candles about which so much had been said before were delivered to me by the hand of Dennis the Chamberlain. And thus all turned out as the martyr had predicted, since it came to pass that they were handed over to me, and not by him to whom the order was given, but by another hand. Thus it came to pass that Christ's glorious martyr from that day forward was repaired to with more and more fear and awe, and with ever-increasing reverence from the hearts of all, and the service of a pious devotion towards him went on growing and increasing. So, doesn't that story just make you feel all warm and fuzzy about little William, the innocent child saint of Norwich? No? Why not? Could it be because he basically condemns a suffering man to death just because the man refuses to pay up? Because he's essentially running a kind of supernatural protection racket? I find my students tend to be startled and surprised by stories like this. And I've always chalked that up to their coming from largely suburban, moderate Christian religious backgrounds and being raised with the idea that there's a clear and sharp division between the Old Testament's vengeful God and the New Testament's loving God. But as I've been looking for data on a historical trend away from a punitive God to a wholly benevolent one, what I've found has challenged my sense that my students, for the most part, don't believe in an angry, jealous God. A 2010 study by researchers at Baylor found that among Americans, 31% believe in a judgmental God who dispenses both reward and punishment, while only 24% believed in a benevolent God who intervenes only for good. Uh, and of the remaining 45%, uh, atheists were only 5%, and the other 40% believed in a god who does not directly act in the world. I suppose, given those figures, that it is plausible that, via self-selection, the 30% who believe in a vengeful god aren't necessarily making up a similar proportion of people in state university classrooms, um, but I still suspect that it's a higher percentage than I at least have, have recognized. But even so, I, I do think belief in divine punishment today doesn't usually encompass the kind of gruesome and personal assaults that are recorded in a large number of medieval saints' lives. Uh, indeed, there is essentially a parallel category of divine action that runs alongside miracle cures, and that's miracle injuries. One person comes to the shrine and prays to have uh, her withered arm made whole, and Boom, she's cured. Another comes and makes a false oath before the shrine, and boom, their eyes fall out of their head. I expect there is a sizable proportion of Americans who accept the proposition that God visits natural disasters on godless cities and sends epidemics through sinful populations, um, punishment that's operating at at least one level of abstraction. But I expect you would find uh, far fewer who readily embrace the idea that because Jimbo stole money from the collection plate, God killed him by crashing his car into a tree. But I may be wrong about that. I'd be curious to hear your perceptions. Certainly, though, 
in medieval saints' lives, the idea that offending the sacred in some way will provoke direct and personal retaliation from either an offended saint or an offended god is well entrenched and probably quite ancient. There is something very reminiscent of mortals dealing with Greco-Roman gods and demigods in the way that so many supplicants interact with the spirits of saints, especially in the jealousy that the saint will manifest, the demands for absolute devotion and obedience. The saints often exude a kind of narcissism, which doesn't seem particularly saintly, but that kind of makes sense when you think about the conflicting roles that they have to play in these uh, hagiographies. Because the purpose of a saint's life, especially one like this, um, whose saint is still an up-and-comer and is a potential object of um, pilgrimage, the purpose of these lives is to be promotional propaganda to trumpet the power of the saint. So however much the saint in life may have embodied Christian humility, once they're dead and securely among the blessed, they become not only spokespeople for, but in fact manifestations of divine power. And this power must be presented in fearful majesty. And so they're obligated, as characters in hagiography at least, to be rhetorically imperious and even sort of boastful of their own power and their ability to reward and punish, a power always delegated to them through God, of course. We certainly see that in Thomas's depiction of William here. And it's even more striking here, I think, because it's so hard to associate this confident, domineering spirit William with the 12-year-old child that died. There's very little in the style or rhetoric of the spoken dialogue that suggests a child, uh, except perhaps for the, the line, I was born on the day called Candlemas Day and Candles I Love, which, which does have a touch of childish reasoning about it. Um, it also doesn't help that Jessup and James's translation renders the speech with these and thous and hasts and a general King James Bible register, uh, which is a stylistic choice not required by the original Latin, um, but is common in these uh, 19th century translations. Anyway, whatever distinctive personality William might have had as a child saint is washed away in these scenes, and he becomes indistinguishable from almost any other saint appearing in a dream vision at a shrine. It's no wonder, then, that Thomas has to omit one of the other common tropes of such a vision, which is the, the visual element. You can usually rely on the saint appearing as a figure clad in white or shining garments. Uh, Thomas gives us no details about William's appearance in this pair of visions, um, other than mentioning once that he has an angry expression. I expect that's because he is to some degree aware of the cognitive dissonance that this would create in an audience trying to maintain an image of the child and fit the dreadful words being spoken to it. That said, there is also a theological question of whether the soul of a child saint would necessarily appear as a child, um, or would it appear in its perfect heavenly form as an adult, which is an interesting question we might explore more at another time, though I'll just quickly note that earlier in this book, Thomas has his own vision of William, and he sees him then as a child. So there's that. Before we go, and I promised shorter post-text commentary, and I'm starting to think I've broken that promise, 
uh, I do want to talk about the demonic pig. When I spoke earlier about Thomas sometimes seeming a bit desperate to drum up supernatural or miraculous incidents for his narrative, this would be a case in point. Basically, all that happens is a pig gets into the church, and the monks have to scramble around to get it out. In another context, it would be part of a screwball or even a romantic comedy. It's a little pig in the house. Oh, this is crazy. It's fun, like in that movie. Let's chase it together. I'll grab it and you snatch the bow. It'll be romantic. Come on, it's pig chasing. Mom, Dad, there's a pig in the house. So, treating this pig incursion as a manifestation of diabolical intervention is pretty weak sauce. It doesn't really even seem to factor into the monk Richard's failure to follow through on William's commands. The devil pig doesn't actually lead him astray or distract him from getting the candles or do anything particularly relevant. Uh, But in this case, I'm grateful for Thomas's lack of editorial restraint, uh, because this is exactly the kind of scene that I read these texts for. Uh, And also, I like it because it reminds me of one of my favorite season two King of the Hill episodes, which we just heard a little snippet from. So last episode's riddle was, though I didn't let on at the time, topical for that episode. It was another of the Claretti Enigmata, uh, as translated by Frederick Peachy, and it went like this. Two beams on which the chickens sit while a cock stands talking among them. Having just heard a discussion on medieval dentistry, I hope the answer might have popped out for a few of you. The answer is, the chickens on the beams are two rows of teeth, white teeth, and the rooster is the tongue of the person speaking. Our new riddle will be something a bit different and longer than the almost aphoristic riddles we've mainly been doing so far. Here it goes. But what is the wonder that fares throughout the world, fiercely goes, beats the foundations, wakens drops of snow, often struggles hither, neither star nor stone nor the lofty gem, water or wild beast may aught escape it, but into its power goes hard and soft, much meat. For its food every year shall go, of those that till the ground, of those that fly the air, of those that swim the water, thrice thirteen thousand in number. One more time. But what is the wonder that fares throughout the world, fiercely goes, beats the foundations, wakens drops of snow, often struggles hither, neither star nor stone nor the lofty gem, water or wild beast may aught escape it, but into its power goes hard and soft, much meat, for its food every year shall go, of those that till the ground, of those that fly the air, of those that swim the water, thrice thirteen thousand in number." And I'll leave you to ponder that one. I'll be back with the answer and a new episode in two weeks. If you're bored in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at MDT Podcast or visit our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can get more information about the show and leave comments. And you can send me feedback, corrections, and questions by emailing Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next time, and thanks for listening. younger than
on you. Get out of here. This is my room, you pig. A pig in the house. It's crazy. It's fun. Come on, Bobby. Mother, do not lift the pig. Keep the pig on the ground. 